Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. I think most every church um, has at its core a desire to bring transformation to the world. Every church wants to make a difference. We want to make an impact. But the question we wrestle with is how? And why should we? Maybe. Why should the church make an impact? I mean, you think about it. What about the church? What is it about the church that the world should be drawn to? To make them say, they've got something I don't have. They have something I need, something I want. That's sort of what we want to look at today from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And just to put us back in the context of where we're at in the book of Acts... Um, The Holy Spirit has come to indwell believers in Christ, and we saw the birth of the church here in Acts chapter 2. And Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, remember he preached the first gospel message. And around 3,000 people have trusted in Christ as uh, Lord and Messiah, as God and Savior. So they're just starting to realize who Jesus Christ is. We've got 3,000 newborn baby Christians. And so they're saved, but now they're going to learn now what it means to be the church. Okay, we've received Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now what, basically? And we're going to look at the, the atmosphere, the activities, and priorities of this this early church we would call it we could call it the first church and uh, I think you're gonna love this it's an ideal picture of what this called out community we call the church is supposed to be like let's look at that uh, verse 42 through 47 they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continually with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Great passage that we get to study this morning. The first thing we see here is the the key practices of the early church and don't get that confused with the early church of like the second and third centuries i'm talking about the early early church i mean the first church right here in the book of acts every now and then through our study of the book of acts we're going to see luke sort of summarizing time periods for us basically describing the habitual activities that that went on within the church over a period of weeks or months. And this here is a wonderful uh, descriptive summarization of life in the early church. It's an ideal picture. I mean, when you look at this, that's, that's what you, th- you should think. Wow, this is ideal. Like, this is what the church is supposed to be like. And it's, it's showing us what a spirit-filled church is like. The spirit-filled church. Later on, he'll okay. He's kind of being an idealist right here. He's ignoring some things. Okay, um, he'll be more of a realist later. He's going to talk about in Acts chapter four and five how um, 
some hypocrisy crops up and some false teaching, and, and we're going to see how that was dealt with. But for right now, he's, he's in an idealistic mindset, and he just wants us to capture, I think, a vision of what a spirit-filled community is like. Did you catch that? He's ignoring some things on purpose so that some, some, some descriptive details on purpose so that we just catch a glimpse of what a spirit-filled community is like. And it's a beautiful thing. I'd, I would even say it's a heavenly thing. It's this, what we just read about, this kind of community, it's otherworldly. You know what I mean? It's, it's strange. That's why I've entitled this sermon, A Strange Community. A strange defined as something that's almost, it's shocking, it's unfamiliar to this world, it's unusually surprising. It's something that the world looks at and says, that's, that's a different community, but it's a good one. And we see in verse 42 that this strange community was continually devoted to four key practices. Four key practices in verse 42. But let me ask you, what do you think of when you think of continual devotion? You think of someone who's continually devoted to something. What do you think of? Parents? Parenting? Yeah. Maybe some of these college students laboring over their papers and midterms. And, um, I think of a, an athlete that has this single-mindedness that's devoted to the prize. You know, like, like Michael Phelps, you know, the Olympic gold winner. He's got more medals than anybody else. And that man, that swimmer, had to. he made a decision as a young boy that that's what he was going to pursue. And with single-mindedness, I mean, he, he pursued that for years. I mean, when you do that, you have to change your, your lifestyle, the way you eat, the way you, you drink, you, uh, when you wake up. I mean, you have to exercise, all of these different things. It's a very strict um, schedule that they've got to run that they're on and uh, as you can tell it, it it paid off I mean eating things like that taste like cardboard paid off right saying no to this the, the chocolate sundaes and saying yes to cardboard but it paid off uh, that's what they were about they were they were continually devoted. They had this single-mindedness, this steadfastness of giving themselves to something. And here's the first one. They were continually devoted to teaching. They were a Bible-studying church, corporately devoted to teaching. The, the Greek words didache, doctrine. You know what this tells us? It tells us that a spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church. If you're looking for a new church, look for a church that carries Bibles, opens their Bibles, and sticks close to the text. That's a spirit-filled church. It's really not that hard to find, right? Well, actually, it is kind of hard to find in our world. But, it, I mean, if you're just looking for a spirit-filled church, go to one that has Bibles, and they open them, and they study it, and they stay close to it. This church was hungry for the teaching of God's Word. And they were looking to whose teaching? It says the apostles' teaching. These men, these 12 who had been trained by Jesus himself, they'd walked with him during the course of his ministry, and they were appointed by Jesus for this task, to be the teachers who laid the foundation for the church. And these were men who could teach and speak forth the word of God with authority and you, you, can, you can bet that they were using the Old Testament thoroughly to explain Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, from the prophecies about him. And so he's explaining to this early church who Jesus is and what he means for us, basically. And they probably taught what it looks like to follow him in light of what he has done. So they taught him the gospel and then how to live out the gospel in their relationships. And I think what should impress us 
If you were with us through the Gospel of Mark, or if you've read through the Gospels and you're familiar with the Gospels, is uh, how these apostles, which were disciples, you know, back when they were just the disciples, they didn't they didn't understand everything Jesus said all the time, did they? They were often confused and uh, didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about. But now, look at this: now that the Holy Spirit has come to to illuminate the scriptures for them and to guide them into all truth, like Jesus said. These men have gone from these confused disciples to these lean, mean teaching machines, right? I mean, the Spirit has changed these men. They have spiritual insight now like they didn't have before, and, and some of you can attest to that. This, I, as soon as I came to Christ, it was like the Bible just opened up to me. I finally started to understand some things. And, and the Spirit, you can tell, has enabled them for their task, for their apostolic task. And as the church today, think about this, the same spirit that enables them enables us. He gives us certain spiritual gifts. And think about this, we still focus on apostolic teaching. We're still under the authority of the apostolic teaching by giving our attention to God's word that they wrote. Is this not the New Testament, like the apostolic teachings? We're still under that. We're still learning from the apostles. Spirit-filled churches are going to long to study the apostolic word of God and obey it. And I like this. I really like this point because we're learning from men in the New Testament, that Jesus himself appointed. And think about this. In, in light of other religions in the world, we've got 12 men here who walked with Jesus, at least, okay? And, and uh, the Apostle Paul. And these are men who did their ministries publicly. The things that took place were taking place publicly. They were eyewitnesses of Christ. Uh, these are men whose testimonies are consistent. They have consistent testimonies. They have consistent teaching. Don't you think they would contradict one another? Twelve of them? Can we get two people to agree in the church today on everything? Here's twelve men teaching consistent truth all the time. It's amazing. And they gave their lives for it. That's how much that, that they, they uh, believed it. So we can trust them. We can trust. This is a historical record that we're reading about here. What happened with these 12 in history, these real 12 men that really taught these things, that really did these things? Okay? Christianity is not like some of the other religions out there, you think of Islam, you think of Mormonism, you think of Buddha, Buddhism. I mean, when you're following one of those religions, what are you following? You're basically following one man who got his revelations in secret. <laughs> okay, like Muhammad in a cave, Joseph Smith in the woods, you're behind a curtain looking in a hat, playing with sorcery. Here's... 12 men who God affirmed with miracles publicly. He affirmed their teaching, the Bible says, with signs. I'm so thankful some of these men did not have supernatural signs to accompany their teaching. Right? God didn't affirm that. And their teaching, Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, it goes directly against what the apostles taught. And so when we go to measure teaching today, we know false teaching by measuring it against the apostolic teaching. Consider apostolic teaching like the straight ruler that determines everything else. Everything else that doesn't line up with it is crooked. But anyway, we're still under the apostolic word. What I like about the early church is that these 3,000 newborns in Christ understood that they needed to grow in Christ. They saw their need for growth. And they didn't, they didn't just say, they didn't just hear the gospel message and say, I believe and 
that's great. I'm, I'll get baptized. I'll go home with the Gospel of John, and I'll you know I'll just stay home or something. You know, I mean, I mean, they saw salvation as only the beginning of the Christian life. It's just the beginning. It's not an end in itself. They saw that they needed the Word of God to grow in Christ, and I like what Peter says in in 1 Peter 2, like newborn babies, this is what we're to long for as Christians, to long for the, the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. You see his play on words there? If you've tasted. Newborn babies longing for the pure milk of the word. That's how we grow. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship. They were a, a loving, relational church. Don't you like that koinonia photo I found up there? Um, the word for uh, fellowship here is a Greek word, koinonia. And you're, you're probably familiar with it if you've been around a while. But it means sharing in common. And this is the first of 19 references to this word in the New Testament. And it has the idea of giving yourself in an investment in one another. You're investing in one another by giving of yourself somehow. Secular uh, Greek writers might use this word to describe the bond between a husband and wife. A husband and a wife uh, invest in each other. They share a life experience. That's, that's koinonia fellowship. We share experience. We share our lives with each other. And I think the difference between a koinonia church and a non-koinonia church is like comparing the difference between a bag of marbles and a bag of grapes. A bag of marbles, are those are formed individually. And when you put them in a bag together, they just, they clack and they clatter and they scratch each other. I mean, there's no coming together. Those marbles, they just... They butt heads. There's no give in their life. They don't open up. Grapes, however, you put them in a bag together. Well, first off, they're formed on the same branch, kind of like we are in Christ. We grow on the same branch together. We're, we're literally, we're like made, grapes are, are made to, they're made in clusters together. And let's, let's say you, you put them in a bag, just like you do with the marbles, and you, you shake them up. What's going to happen with them? They're going to, yeah, they're going to open up. They're going to start to drip, and before long, and they're going to produce some sweet wine. I think Koinonia Christian community is like, like the grapes, we grow together, we do life together, and we participate in this sweet, common experience. I mean, we can be transparent with one another. We can open up and we can, we can invest in one another. I think that's what everybody longs for. And uh, I think whether or not we're able to do that is a sign of Christian maturity. If you're drawing close to God yourself, you should be growing in your love for his people. Amen? You're drawn to other Christians. Uh, you, could, you could go to first, we could study first John for this, this principle. I mean, he talks about this a lot. You know, your love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you long for a fellowship. If you're drawn to God, you're going to be drawn to his people. And so... Yes, knowledge of God's Word is part of growing in Christ, but it's not everything, is it? There's a lot of people who know a lot, but they're still not necessarily mature. We don't want to be that church that everybody comes to and you know we hear the truth and we say amen and then we go home and that's it. And we all go about our lives with our individual faith and that sort of thing. No, we want to we do life together as a church. I mean, the church by definition is what? It's a, it's a gathering, isn't it? It's an assembly. We say things like, well, we painted the church yesterday. Did we? Did we paint the church yesterday? You guys must have cleaned up well. 
But we, we say that, but we get, we get what we mean, right? I mean, really, the, this is just the church building. We are the church. We're the assembly of God. We're his people. This church in the book of Acts, they, they didn't even have a building yet, and yet they're the church. Okay, they're still meeting outside and from house to house in Solomon's portico, which is part of the temple. But that's who we are. We, the people are the church. One of the things I love about this church, Shadron Berean, is that as busy as all of you guys are, you still make an effort to spend time with each other. And uh, that's a big deal. That's how you know a, a church is growing and it's strong. It's like you, you have relationships, right? That's why we have small groups and Bible studies. So you, you connect outside of the main worship service. I had someone in our church recently tell me how the other night at the, the outdoor fellowship thing that we had at Fisher's, someone came up to me after that, later that week, and was like, you know, I... And with like, kind of like, you know, tears in their eyes saying, you know, this is like the first time I've had friends. I feel like this is the first time I've really had friends. And I just went, that's what, <laughs> that's what we're about, right? That's awesome. Someone else expressed something similar to me, like just how... The, the social angst, you know, since they've been here has just kind of gone away. And I don't, I don't know how far to take that, like as far as our church helping out with that. But that's awesome. I'm excited about that. Like uh, to be a church that, where community is important and community is enjoyable. Is it always enjoyable in the world? I don't think so. I, wanna, I want this community, this church to be a place where community is important and it's enjoyable. And uh, so praise God for testimonies like that right but what makes this i think even more amazing is just all the di all the diversity present in acts chapter 2 remember you had jews and converts from all over the world i mean from basically from spain to persia iran and this whole old this whole old mediterranean world i mean people were there from all over the world and yet you, you they had they had to bring all their cultural differences with them Yet in Christ, they're experiencing more unity, I think, than we can imagine with far more diversity than we can imagine. But that's what Christ can do. He can bring all of us with all of our diversity together in Christ. Look at number three. They're devoted to, and this is my favorite, they were devoted to eating together. They were a hungry church. You see the breaking of bread in verse 42 and breaking bread from house to house in verse 46. And just about every commentator agreed that these were likely references to um, formal and informal meals. Formal meaning communion. We come together, we partake of the Lord's Supper, and I think that's neat because uh, last week we saw baptism, water baptism. Now we're looking at communion, and so you see both of Jesus' ordinances right here in the first church, right at the beginning. And then informally, just meaning that they were eating together there eating together, like at fellowship dinners, having small groups from house to house. They were sharing meals. And that's important. Shared meals bring people together. Stomachs and relationships grow at the table. And get your mind off of lunch. Right? Get back. Okay. Number four. Felt like I had to say that. Some of you guys are thinking about lunch already now. Uh, fourthly, they were continually devoted to prayer, meaning they were a, a dependent church. Luke emphasizes prayer throughout Acts. And uh, here we see that the early church was a community of prayer, corporate prayer, praying together as a church something that the entire body is engaged in. And prayer is big. Uh, that's why we take time to, to quiet our hearts and to pray on Sunday as a congregation. It's really important. Um, prayer is big in Acts because Acts is a book about dependence on God and, and dependence on His Spirit. And, that's, and it's through prayer, that's how we communicate our dependence on God, isn't it? 
um, by going to the Lord in prayer, we're, we're seeking Him, we're seeking His power, we're seeking His guidance for our lives, and, and we're bringing corporately the needs of the church body before the Lord, just like Daryl did this morning. And if we want to be a Spirit-filled church with satisfying worship, with nourishing instruction, with sweet fellowship, with effective outreach, we need to be a praying church. A Spirit-filled church is a praying church. And then let's look at the results of these four key practices that they had. The results. And just think of this real quick. These were day-to-day practices for them. Do you guys live in the day-to-day? Day after day after day after day. Or do you live in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, where the... You know, the, the noise of a violent rushing wind came and the fiery tongues rested on their heads. That had to be a mountaintop experience, right? That's a pretty special experience. But did they stay there? No. Where did they go? Into the day-to-day. And it's through these key practices in the day-to-day that they found these amazing results. See, there's... There's great results from just being faithful in the day-to-day stuff like this. Key practice result number one is just wonderment. Would you like that picture? Like, I'm amazed. Um, Verse 43 says, They kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. But think of this. I mean, these people last week were in panic mode. They're like, we crucified our Messiah. Now what? What are we going to do? And now they're in awe. So they go from panic to awe as they witness God's power and grace that he's showing them in this new age. And uh, granted, you know, wonderment, the whole wonderment was intensified through the apostolic miracles. And next time we're in Acts, we'll, we'll look at the first miraculous healing. They'll heal a a lame man, or at least one of their healings. But you've got to think, should wonderment stop there with the miracles and the signs like healing a lame man? What's more wonderful than that? I would say it's more amazing to see someone, someone's life transformed in the day-to-day faithfulness of a Christian witness. That, to me, is, is wonderful. That's, that's a greater eternal miracle than just healing a lame man physically. Okay, To see a sinner repent and, and come to Christ and their lives be transformed, I think... We need to be in wonder today as we see God work in our lives in the day-to-day or work in others' lives, transforming us by the Word, little by little. I think let's have a sense of expectancy and, and uh, watchfulness. as we, we, we need an awareness, I think, of how God is working in our day-to-day faithfulness to these key practices teaching, prayer, that sort of thing. Key result uh, number two, key practice result number two is joy. Look at this. They had real gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. So think, yeah, you, you just have to think about what they're coming out of, the, the context that they're used to, what are they used to seeing in the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You think the Pharisees were, were described as joyful? <laughs> when we read about these guys, and you read about them in Galatians, and we'll encounter them some more in the book of Acts, they're the stone throwers, okay? <laughs> um, they're anything but joyful. These guys are competitive. They're stuck in this cold religious legalism and ritualism 
where they're just kind of competing against one another. Remember Galatians chapter 5? They're biting and devouring one another, consuming one another. That's what legalism does. But these folks here have experienced grace in Christ. They're not at odds with one another. They're all level at the foot of the cross. They're not competing anymore. So they have this overwhelming joy. They have joyful lives of worship. They're um, just enthralled with what Jesus has done for them. Has, are you like that? Can I ask you that? Are you like that? Are you just enthralled with what Jesus has done for you? Has your life become more joyful since you've become a Christian? I know mine has. I don't even think I knew how to sing before I was a Christian or praise. I never had this abounding joy in my heart. Now that I've become a Christian, I've had to I've had to learn how to sing, but it's you know, I sound like a crow sometimes. But or a dead or a cat on its way to death, but <laughs> sorry. But man, I can't help it. I mean, Jesus has saved me. I wanna I wanna praise him. Colossians two seven, that's a natural overflow of being rooted in Christ. You just abound with thanksgiving. You have this joy, joyful disposition, regardless of what's going on in your life. It's a joy that's deep down. Key practice result number three is the generosity. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day. I mean, they were sharing their homes, sharing their bread, all of that. And this is an incredible description I read this and I think, boy, that's a, that's a church I want to be a part of. It, it tells us, I think, that the Spirit was working through the apostles' gospel teaching. I say that because um, they're learning to live as Christ had lived for them. Okay? Their, their selflessness and this, this kind of koinonia fellowship it just isn't natural. In this world, this world is, is an I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine type of world, isn't it? I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But the Spirit says, and a Christ-like heart says, I'll scratch your back regardless of what, if you scratch mine. Okay, I could, because why? Because I'm, I'm a servant. I'm a servant like the Savior. And so what you're seeing in them is a Spirit-led response I think, to the gracious generosity of Christ and the gospel. When you, when you start to realize what Jesus did for you, and you start to realize that you have everything you need in him. Colossians this morning, what did we learn? We are complete in Christ. We're complete. You have Love, you have security, you have significance, you have all these, you're filthy rich spiritually. He's dumped the, the riches of heaven on you. You're not so concerned about yourself anymore. You kind of take your eyes off yourself and you say, wow, I can, I can serve others because I have all I need. And so in that sense, you end up modeling Christ, you start to be generous with others because he's been so generous with you. He's forgiven you, you start to forgive others. He served you, you start to serve others. You get where I'm going with that? That's living the gospel. By the Spirit, they started to genuinely care for one another's needs. Um, they were fellowshipping with one another, they were aware of others' needs through that. And this remember, this is a unique situation. People from all over the world had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And this was just supposed to be just a, a pilgrimage. Remember that? One of four pilgrimages to Jerusalem for these Jews. And probably only going to stay there a week or so. Something like that. And anyway, they, they, they didn't bring enough provisions to stay as long as they had. They were planning to come for a short time, but God was doing something new, obviously. 
And they were excited about that. Lives were being changed, and they just couldn't get enough of it, and they just didn't want to go home because they wanted to see what else God was going to continue to do. You get where I'm, you get the context there, right? People had come. They hadn't brought enough provisions. And where are they going to stay but in the Christians who live in Jerusalem's house, in the house of the Christians who live there? And so their limited provisions were running out. There was actual physical needs that people were voluntarily meeting. It's a voluntary demonstration of love. People started to sell some things to provide for those who had come. And we'll see this again in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Um, I, think it's, I think it's funny, some try to read communism in this, but it's anything but that. This is not forced sharing. This is voluntary sharing of personal property. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's a special, special situation. But countless times, I've seen people do the same in church today, in small ways, uh, giving up something they own just to bless someone else. I mean, it's, it's almost a normal thing here. It's, you guys are really generous. I'll just say it. People are always stepping up. I'm getting phone texts, I mean, texts and phone calls all the time with people just willing to give their time, willing to give money to the church for something. I mean, I saw it a little more than usual this week because we had a church painting project. People were saying, how can I bring food? How can I, you know, I've got a paint sprayer we can use. I mean, it was, it was neat. People were using their own personal property to bless you guys, to bless us. And anyway, I see it all the time, and, and it's great. But think about this. The church was valuing people more than possessions. They're saying, I'm willing to sell some land. I'm like Barnabas, you'll see in Acts 4. I'm willing to sell some land just to provide for these people. I'm willing to sell this. I'm willing to sell that. Okay? They, they're valuing these people more than their possessions. They're not living for this world anymore, are they? They're living for a new world. And it's critical to remember that valuing people uh, like this was new. In the world that they were living in, it was the powerful and the talented, and it was the rich that thrived. It was a survival of the fittest world. When we read through the Gospel of Mark, where did you find, where did you find the, the poor people and the, the needy people? On the streets, right? The widows, where are they? On the streets. Where's the babies at in ancient Rome in this day? At the dump, dying from a practice called exposure. And so this is the culture that this is in. Um, the thought of giving yourself in service to others, investing in others, the widow, the orphan, the abandoned baby, the poor, anybody, the needy. I mean, this was much rarer than it is today. Um, you, you see this in the disciples is competition for thrones in the Gospels. Who's the greatest? Arguing who's the greatest. They don't want to serve anybody, do they? They want to be served. And Jesus really blows their minds, and he blows their value system out of the water by washing their feet and saying, the greatest in the kingdom of God is the servants, not those who are served. And so it's, it's strange to serve others willingly. This shows us that no Christian should ever walk around with an I'm greater than you mentality, refusing to serve someone else. The gospel, the whole, the, the gospel should basically humble us in that regard. If Jesus can leave the glories of heaven and come to this earth to serve us and to die for all men, then how can we refuse to serve others and look at others as though they're less than we are. Does that make sense? I don't think we should ever have a condescending tone or cursing speech, even, the way we talk about other people. James says, 
that with our tongues, you know, we praise God, but we also curse men who are made in God's image. And he says, my brothers, this shouldn't even, this should not be. So we need to learn to see people and value people, not based on what they can contribute to society like they did back then. And, and not based on their performance, but based on who they are inherently, inherently valuable as someone made in the image of God. So you think about that against the, the harsh backdrop of the culture. Think about this church giving up all these possessions to take care of other people against the harsh backdrop of the culture. That, and, you'll, and I guess you'll, you'll see why they were so attractive to the people around them. Why they had favor with all the people. I mean, history, history, guys, tells us that the whole humanitarian system, you guys know what I'm talking about, social workers caring for people who need help, uh, orphanages, these weren't in existence back then. You know where they came from? Christians living the gospel. It's just people doing what Christ has done for them. I mean, this entire servant-minded segment of society that sees the need to take care of a needy person and the orphan and the widow, that all goes back to Christians in the early church. Isn't that amazing? This church living the gospel has revolutionized society. I mean, the world hadn't seen this kind of love and this kind of grace and this kind of humility. And all they were doing was imitating Christ, loving as Christ loved them. But look at key practice result number four is the attractiveness. Uh, having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you get the sense here that even people outside were appreciative of this new community. They had favor with all the people. Note that connection between the kind of community that they were and the favor that this community experienced with outsiders. How many churches can say they have a, a, uh, a favorable position with outsiders just because of what they're like? <laughs> can every church say that? Can they see something different in us? I was surprised that in a lot of the commentaries, there's a lot of, there, when they get to this verse about having favor with people and the Lord adding to their number day by day, they start to talk about evangelism. Do you guys see any evangelism there? Personally, I don't. I think that's reading in between the lines, and I think to start talking about evangelism here is to actually downplay the main point. The main point is that this new community of believers is so attractive with their their Christ-like love and their unity and their peace and their joy and their generosity and their grace and their humility that people are drawn to them and then drawn to Christ. Do you guys see that? That's like the big point this week. Okay, they, they see something different. They see something strange and they're drawn to that and because of that, they're drawn, drawn to Christ. And this is exactly what... Jesus prayed for in John 17, verse 21. You remember what he prayed back there, right? That he, he prayed something like this, that we as his people, as his followers, would be one even as him and the Father are one. So that, you remember, here's the purpose, so that the world would believe in him. Isn't that amazing? There's something about our unity and our koinonia-ing, is that a word? Our koinonia-ing that the world looks at and says, I believe in Jesus Christ because of that. Isn't that amazing? That's something that Luke wants us to catch a glimpse of. I have no doubt in my mind. He wants us to see this or to at least rediscover it to strive for it and, and to return to it, to see and discover how essential the church's unity in the Spirit is for an effective witness. I don't even think they have to go out and evangelize. I think they're just, people are catching on. There's something different 
about these people. This, this, that's exactly what happened in the early church, what Jesus prayed in John 17. Can it happen in ours? This community was a shining light in a dark world of self-centeredness and anger and hate and division and broken relationships. You guys know of any of that today? Isn't that a description of America today, at least when you get on the news and stuff? Actually, when I get on the news anymore, social media, anything that involves the news, I just kind of go into like Pilate's mode when he was questioning Jesus. What is truth? What is truth? But it's a world that doesn't have truth, and because of it, they're stuck in their self-centeredness, anger, hate, division. It's like this church was modeling a whole new mode of existence that everybody longed for. And it's new, both new and I think it's old too. It's a new and old form. Old in the fact that this is what we were created for. Back in the Garden of Eden, when you look at the relationship between Adam and Eve, what's it described as? It's this beautiful, transparent cleaving to one another. They're glued to one another, right? They have this, this harmony, this intimacy, and this fellowship. And that is uh, reflective of God's triune personality. God has forever, before he created angels or men, he's been in community with himself in this intimate, harmonic triunity. That sort of oneness we were created for in God's image has been lost due to sin. Sin wrecks our relationships. But you look now, the Spirit of God has come. The new creation, right? The first creation has fallen. The new creation has come. And what do you see? You see restored relationships. It's prophetic. I'll restore the hearts of fathers to their sons, that sort of thing. It's what we were made for. That's, that's why people long for it. Through Christ, God is restoring us to the state of our parents before the fall that were made in his image with this community in harmony and in intimacy. And it's the Spirit of God that, that teaches us that community formation and relationships are a huge part of who we are. That people are more important than our possessions. That, that people are more important than property, that people are more important than jobs, that people are more important than, than addictions. I mean, if I didn't have the Spirit of God in me, guys, I hate to say it, but I would be living for my booze. I wouldn't even have a family. I would love my booze more than I love people. And I'd still be sitting in a tractor by myself, drinking booze, ruining my own life, having zero friends, probably. Real friends. The Spirit of God has come, and He changes us, and He teaches us community formation. He teaches us the importance of relationships. He restores the image of God in man, and it's only going to get better. Through the Spirit and by applying the gospel to our relationships, our relationships can flourish again. And, it's, and I don't think it's a wonder that this, this little passage reminds me so much of what heaven is going to be like. Don't you read this and think, this sounds like heaven. I do. We're going to enjoy harmonious community forever like the way we were, we were created to. And it's going to be awesome. And hey, there is going to be per, private property in heaven. You guys remember when we studied that? There's dwelling places. We all have rewards. There's different rewards for faithfulness. And I'm going to have a dwelling place in heaven, and I'm going to invite all you guys. And we're going to have a Shadron Brian church party in heaven. Okay? And if you want, you can invite me into your dwelling place. I can't think of the verse to back that up with, but it's in Luke somewhere. I was, I was a part of a, a life group for 20 and 30-year-olds for... Uh, just a small group, you know, 20 and 30s group. And I was a part of this group for probably four years, I would say. 
And that life group uh, was based on verse 42, based on the teaching, the food, the fellowship, which was often around board games and outdoor games, and then prayer. And every Sunday night, we would, we would commit ourselves to those four things, teaching, prayer, fellowship, and food. And looking back, I can see these results as a result of being committed to those four key practices. I mean, our small group grew, and it became a too big of a group to be called a small group. And actually, the church was that I was a part of, that it was a part of, was actually, you know, starting to get a little hesitant with it, like, wow, this is like its own little church over here growing. And uh, I'm just saying it, it, it was amazing to be a part of because in that group, we, we really did do life together. We had a lot of fun. And it was, it was sweet community. That's actually a, where I met my wife was in that group. We really started to do life together then. But let me ask you a question as I, as I close here. Let me ask you a question, Shadron Bereans. Do you want to advance the gospel? You really want to? Do you want to see transformation in the world? You want to bring transformation to the world? Ask yourself this question. What is the world seeing in the church today? What is the culture of our church known for? Is it what we've read about in verse 42 through 47, or is it more what churches are known for, dividing over paint colors, dividing over the color of the carpet that they, that they pick out? You know, you've heard of churches splitting over these things, right? Things that don't matter. Personal opinions. What is the world seeing in our church? What is the world seeing in your life? You who claim to be a part of the church. Do we look like the world? Are we known for our hate and our slander? Are we known for divisivity? Are we known for dividing over petty things that in the matter that in the end really don't matter? Or are we known for being strange? Are we strangely loving, strangely generous, strangely caring, strangely attractive, strangely one-minded? We have one mission, despite our differences. Are you guys strange? <laughs>